Lord. Please Amen. Be Please be seated. Uh, our sermon text is uh, taken from Matthew 10, the first four verses of uh, this great chapter. Hear the word of God. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that you are the Lord of the harvest. And I believe that you are entitled, absolutely entitled, to our worship and devotion. I believe that unless you preach this sermon, I will preach it in vain. I believe that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I believe that you have come again this morning to seek and to save the lost. And I believe that you have come to beautify your bride. And I pray that you would do these things. And as you do them this morning, that you would also send out laborers into your harvest. I pray in your name. Amen. Uh, preaching uh, Matthew through Matthew uh, has uh, made me feel like a brand new Christian uh, over and over again. And that has its uh, good sides and it has its uh, bad side. Um, the good side is that Jesus uh, continues to take my breath away, um, and I thank God for that. Uh, the bad part of it is that I keep being reminded of lessons that I should have learned a long time ago. Um, and one of uh, those relates to the priority of, of witness and evangelism. I had a seminary professor who used to talk uh, in an unflattering way about a phenomenon that he called redemption and lift. So that somebody, and what he meant by that is so often uh, people become Christians, you know, people who didn't grow up in the church, they become Christians, uh, and they're, at the time they're converted, they're in this network of relationships with non-Christians, they get saved, and then they lift, they get redeemed, and then they get lifted out, and, they put in the church, and they're put in the church, which is where they should be, Right, But the, the problem is that they, they only stay with people of faith. And uh, as I particularly, in this section of Matthew's gospel, uh, as I've shared earlier, when I got to this uh, part in May in my own preparations, um, I felt very much as though the Lord was looking me in the eye and not blinking, um, that, that this was very much true of my own life and uh, to a degree that was unacceptable to God uh, because it doesn't tell the truth about who Jesus is. I don't want my life to reflect that. I don't want my life to reflect uh, redemption and lift. And the reason it has is because I've let it. 
And so I'm very grateful for the reminders from this section of Matthew's gospel that when Jesus calls us to himself, he doesn't do it so that we can have Jesus to ourselves or keep him to ourselves. Uh, that what, what discipleship means is stewardship. And uh, receiving the gospel from Christ is a sacred trust. And so I, I share that with you just so you know how God is working my own life. Uh, I am not up here as somebody who understands this, as somebody who is, uh, can hold out his life to you and say, imitate me. And the only thing I can say to you is, let's imitate Christ. Um, because if anything, when we get to this uh, section in Matthew's gospel, what we see is that the story in a Christian's life should not be redemption and lift, but redemption and go, redemption and send. That should be the story. And that's really what we start to see here Jesus do at the end of chapter 9 and as we go into chapter 10. It's a really a remarkable story. This is, the, this is his calling of the 12 disciples to himself. Now, up to this point, we've seen him call uh, five disciples. Uh, Matthew has recorded him calling five. Uh, uh, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and then James and John. Uh, the sons of Zebedee, and all four of those in chapter 4. And then in chapter 9, we saw him call Matthew. But now the 12 are called together. And there are some very unique things that's true, that are true only about this group, unique in redemptive histories. The apostles, Paul tells us, are part with the prophets, are the foundation of the church. You don't keep laying the foundation of the church. Okay, the, the apostolic age was unique in redemptive history, but there are some things that are universal about the apostles that relate to the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us and to every generation of his church. So we can't take refuge in the uniqueness of the apostles. As much as that might make us comfortable... There are some universal things that are true, DNA, if you will, that should be present in every generation of the church and in every generation of Christians. And I want to look with you at three themes this morning from this passage that, um, that, that grow out of um, what Jesus does here, his method, and that apply to us. You notice what Jesus does as he begins to transition ministry into the hands of his disciples. He creates a fellowship. He creates a community and entrusts mission to that entire community. It's very interesting. He doesn't just pick off the individuals and say, now you go do this, and you go do that, and you go do that. He calls them together, and we'll see how amazing that is, because it's quite a group, just as we are. Amazing. Okay? Not because we're great, but because if you looked at all the reasons in this room why we should not be together, you'd be overwhelmed. And there can be only one explanation. The king. Right? There's, no, there's nothing. There's no cause. There's no purpose. There's no value that, that has the power to bring disparate people together, to bring sinners together and hold them together. There's only one gravitational force of significance that could ever be great enough to do that, and it's Jesus Christ, the King. And that's what we see worked out here. But before we get to that, we're going to look at the privilege of the king's mission. We're going to look at the power for the king's mission. And then lastly, we'll look at the people whom Jesus calls 
into his mission. Let's think first about the privilege of the king's mission. Now, I know that, uh, I know that many of you are like me. When, when you hear the word evangelism, you start to think duty uh, and guilt. Uh, I don't know anyone who actually thinks it's a little bit like prayer. Now, I've never met a Christian who says, my prayer life's great. I've never met a Christian who says, I'm evangelizing enough. But there's something about what Jesus does here that, that I think is, is supposed to transform. I think we think way too much about witness and evangelism as a duty and not enough of it as a privilege that should produce a gratitude and joy. And we see uh, that. And really, it's the highest privilege we could ever have if you think about who Jesus is. What Jesus has done, there's two things under this heading I want to think with you about. That, that underscore what a privilege it is uh, to serve Jesus in his mission. The first is that we, Jesus makes us his ambassadors, and the second is that we are his compassion into the world. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. First, think about the fact that we are Jesus's ambassadors. You notice this in verse 1. Jesus, it says, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. So he calls them together and gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. You know what Jesus is doing? Essentially, if you read chapter 9, you go back to verse 35 in chapter 9, what Jesus is doing is he is giving the disciples, whom he calls himself, he's giving them his authority. That's a description of what his mission has been. What Jesus is doing in verse 1 is he is appointing these disciples and when we get to the end of the sermon, we think about this, what, what kind of a motley crew this is. That'll be even more amazing, right? But what he's doing is he's saying, my ministry has been to do these things, and now I am giving you authority to act in my name and extend my ministry. That is amazing. Now, you know, the United Nations was in the news this week, and I was thinking about it. I was thinking, okay, I wonder, do you think that the ambassador to the UN for Liechtenstein feels the same when he or she stands in front of the General Assembly as the ambassador for the United States does? Now, I'm not talking about how people are reacting to them, okay? Because we know how that works out. Everybody loves Liechtenstein. Not many people love us, okay? But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how does the ambassador feel? And of course, there's no comparison, right? I mean, when, when the ambassador for Liechtenstein stands behind that podium, do you really think that she expects anyone to really listen to her? Do you think she feels a weight and dignity that is anywhere near what the United States ambassador to the UN feels? Of course not. Why? Why not? Is it because Liechtenstein's a bad place? No, 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 no. It's because an ambassador's dignity is derivative, right? An ambassador's dignity is the dignity of the sovereign she represents and in whose name she acts. And uh, without casting any uh, aspersion on the character of the Republic of Liechtenstein, the fact of the matter is that Liechtenstein is not consequential to world events in the same way that the United States is. Friends, 
we have to remember that Jesus Christ is the most consequential reality. He is the most consequential sovereign. He owns the universe. He wields all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has appointed you, my Christian brother and sister, to be his ambassador. There is no dignity greater than that. And it does not matter what other people think. Again, remember the, the perspective of my example. It was how does the ambassador think of themselves, not how do other people receive the ambassador. Because there's two relationships, right? There's the ambassador's relationship to the general populace, but the much more fundamental defining relationship is the ambassador's relationship to her sovereign. And in this relationship, this king has entrusted to us the authority to act in his name. I cannot think of a greater thing for a human being to say about themselves besides what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. It was in our call to worship. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Amazing. But it's not only the dignity of the sovereign that invests the ambassador with a sense of privilege, but it's also the character of the sovereign, right? And the, and the better the sovereign is, not just the bigger and the stronger and the more consequential, but the, the better the sovereign is, the, the greater the ambassador's sense of the worth of his or her uh, work. And, and in Jesus' case, the character is uh, stunning. And the second point here is that not only are we Jesus' ambassadors extending the extensions of his ministry, but in particular in the flow of the way Matthew uh, tells this, uh, gives us this account, what we see is that, what we, see is that G- we are Jesus' compassion. Notice the sequence of events starting in verse 35 in chapter 9, which I'm, I'm sorry if all you've got is your... Um, if all you've got is the bulletin, but if you look on page uh, 814 in your pew Bible, the, the blue pew Bible, you can find this. Starting at, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus, right, he's doing ministry, and then verse 36, uh, Matthew rep- puts us behind Jesus' eyes and let us, lets us feel the pulse of Jesus' heart, and it says that Jesus had compassion for the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he enlists his disciples. We saw last week he enlists his disciples in the work of praying that the Lord of the harvest... Well, first he shows them the harvest, and then he says, now pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers out into his harvest. And then the very next thing that happens... See, all that, all that ministry grows out of Jesus' compassion. Uh, The only reason he's doing this is because his heart is going out to the crowds, his ministry. And then the reason he instructs the disciples to pray is because he wants their hearts to join his and to go out in the same direction as his. And then what's the very next thing? He calls the disciples to himself that he might equip them and give them authority to be laborers. In other words, to be the embodied extension of his compassion in the world. Now, I don't know if you think about yourself very much like that. 
But that's, that's what I understand the implication of this sequence to be, is that the church, the disciples of Jesus, are to be the embodied extension of Jesus' compassion in the world. That the way people come to know that Jesus' heart is going out to them in their lostness is that our hearts go out to them in their lostness, and we belong to him because his heart first went out to us in our lostness. Now that, for me, that just is so beautiful, and it's such a challenge because, again, like we've reflected on together over the last couple of weeks, sometimes our relationship as Christians to a culture that is hostile to us, we can return the favor, right? And I think that's wrong. It is, it is absolutely right for us to dissent from the world. It is never okay for us to despise the world. And so this is such a, a beautiful correction of so many tendencies. The friend, do, do you not love, when you have a piece of good news, do you not love to be the, and you know somebody hasn't heard it yet? Don't you love to be the person who gets it to them first? I do. Oh, I love that. There is so much good news about Jesus. Friends, if you woke up this morning as a Christian, guess what? There were new mercies already available for you today from the throne of Jesus. And whatever mercies you were talking about with people yesterday, guess what? There are no stale mercies. You can talk about new mercies today. Those of you who were in the Word already this morning, did not God show you something new? Did you even in the worship service already, was there not some new aspect or a new perspective on the glory of Christ or his gifts to you, some clearing of your eyes, some some new joy that struck your heart, some new wonder that God would call you to himself through Jesus Christ. Friends, you have good news to share. And it's the best of news. There is nothing better that you can share with somebody than the news of Christ. I, when I was thinking about this point, I was reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. He calls the Corinthians, who, by the way, in case you haven't read the Corinthian letters in a, in a while, were kind of a mess. And he says, you, he says this to the Corinthians, you are the letter of Christ. <laughs> You're written... Not on stone tablets, but on tablets of human hearts. And not by men, but by the Spirit. Friends, that's what you are. If you're in Christ this morning, you are the letter of Christ. Your life, my life, are are, are stories that are being narrated, written by Jesus Christ. And it's the story of Christ. And that's what we are. We're supposed to be to the world. We're to be, our lives are supposed to be his letter in the world telling his story that the compassion of Jesus Christ will rule the fate of many. Oh, that's a great privilege. That's a great privilege. And that's the privilege of the king's mission to be his ambassador and to represent him in the world. Secondly, the power for the king's mission And uh, this is a wonder because the power is not ours, okay? Uh, That's clear. Did you notice something was missing, something was conspicuously absent 
uh, from verses 1 through 4 when Jesus calls his disciples uh, to himself, the, when he calls the 12 to himself. And actually, it's, a, it's missing also in chapter 4. Now, a lot of times, well, do you know what it is? Do you know what's totally missing? Did you notice? That's always an unfair question because the person who's asking it already knows what's missing, but you haven't been thinking about that question. So it's a little unfair. So you need to get over it, okay? You know what's missing? Anything in the disciples as the reason for Jesus' calling of them. Now, this is a little bit of a hobby horse for me because when you read uh, a lot of stuff about the disciples, and even in some of my favorite commentaries, much to my chagrin did I discover recently, there is the implication that the reason Jesus picks the 12 and each one of the 12 is because he, surveying the sea of humanity, says, there's potential there. There's not a shred of that anywhere in the text. Do you notice that? It's not in chapter 4 when he calls Simon and Andrew. Jesus doesn't say to them, follow me. Follow me because I see that you have the wits and the guts and the skill to be great fishers of men. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? He doesn't, he's not reacting to something in them. There's no asset evaluation. The calling is itself, right? Sovereign grace from Jesus to the called. Jesus is not reacting. The initiative is his. Oh, that is so encouraging. It has nothing to do, and when I say nothing, I mean absolutely nothing to do with what is in the disciples, and it has absolutely everything to do with what's in Christ. Remember what we saw last week from John Owen, right? When God calls us to something, he doesn't proportion the call to what strength he sees in us. He proportions his call to the power and strength and gifts that are in him and ready for us from him. Now, that's not how we think, right? We tend to think. We tend to look. When we evaluate whether God is calling us to something, our first instinct is to say, well, I take the measure of that, and then I look in here, and guess what? I am wanting, therefore, it must be, since I'm not strong enough or wise enough or don't have enough experience, it cannot be that God would be calling me to that. And then you read, like I did this morning, 2 Corinthians 12, my Grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. In other words, our default logic by which we evaluate whether God is calling us to something is anti-biblical because we are measuring the sense of call according to our sense of ability, and that is unbiblical. Let's just call it what it is, self-protection, unbelief, it's not, it's not the way God does it. Instead, right, it's, all, it's not about what we possess, it's about what Christ possesses for us. 
And all of the power is his. None of it is ours. And that means that all of us, all of it is his. Do you notice again, I just go back to verse one, right? It's so plainly the case. Jesus doesn't call them together and say, okay, now once I tell you guys what to do, you're going to be okay. And we just need to get on the same page. You understand, you kind of watch, you've been good students. And now I'm going to send you out. No, no, he has to give them authority. Do you see that? He, the power of, the authority comes from him. Now, friends, if you think about it, right, we just spent a whole summer uh, on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights thinking together about how it is that God saves a sinner, right? And there is no way that any of us, it has nothing to do with your piety, it has nothing to do with your theological literacy or how well you know your Bible or how long you've been a Christian, it doesn't matter. Even the Apostle Paul didn't have the power to convert somebody. And we have to remember that the problem of sin is a problem that man caused but only God can deliver from. And so, friends, authority must come from Christ. It must be His and all and only His. And that means that there is no situation in which He is overmatched. Think about your last conversation with a non-Christian. I had, uh, I had two this week. And in both of the conversations, there was a point midway through the conversation where I, my, my stomach just dropped through the floor because I thought, this is hard. And I felt, as soon as I said it to myself, I, I heard the holy, duh. Believe what you believe, Mike. It can't happen by human power. The authority must come from Jesus. And so what about us? I mean, we see, we see the disciples receiving authority from Jesus, and we see, we see them, uh, you know, Jesus is giving them authority, but, but our situation isn't like this, is it? I mean, he didn't, he's here by spirit, right? Well, there, there is something unique about this summons and this gathering, but friends, I, what I want to tell you is actually that we have more authority than they did. I mean, you might say, well, wait a second, wait, 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 wait a second. I've never, I've never cast out an unclean spirit. I haven't healed a disease or affliction. Oh, don't be so quick to assume that that's the case, number one. And number two, do you know, friends, that when you were converted, you were converted on a different side of the cross than these men were? And the spirit whom Jesus Christ, the exalted Christ, poured into your life was a spirit of triumph and victory, a greater measure of the Spirit than these men received. And you and I have been entrusted with a gospel that is the power of God. Remember how Paul describes it in Romans 1? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, that's a very interesting way to say that. Because he does, he's not saying... It is about the power of God for salvation. 
Now, if, he, if Paul had said that, I would have said, makes total sense. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the message of God's power for salvation. R- right? No problem with that biblically, right? That's not what he says. He says he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation. There is power in the gospel. It is the power of the exalted Christ and every Christian is a steward of that gospel and that means, friends, that when you and I faithfully speak that gospel, that proclamation, that sharing, that retelling is the means by which the power of God comes out. Not our power, the power of God. And it is also the promise of God, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or from faith forth faith, as it is written, my righteous one shall live by faith. That message is just as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. Friends, ponder those two verses today that God would reveal his righteousness and release his power through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This amazing gospel that reveals the righteousness of God. In other words, the ministry, Paul is saying that the ministry of Jesus Christ reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals that he is a righteous judge. It reveals that every man uh, apart from Christ is under his just wrath because of their sin. This is the crisis. This is the defining crisis of every human life, whether they realize it or not. It is the human crisis. It is universal. The righteousness of God has been revealed. And there is no human being who can live up to that righteous standard. It reveals that we are justly under the judgment of God. That's the first part of the gospel. What makes you harassed and helpless, what makes you like sheep without a shepherd, is your sin. And the essence of sin is to live as though God were not your king. And that offends him. And that's why Jesus says at the end of John 3, if you don't believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on you. Every Monday when I call my parents, I remember that the wrath of God is remaining on them. And that gives me pause. Friends, I have prayed that by God's Spirit, you would see, if you are outside of Christ this morning, you would see that this is your fundamental crisis. The gospel is plain in its diagnosis, but at the same time, the power of God's righteousness not only works in judging our sin, but in providing a judgment bearer for our sin, so that God provides this amazing substitute in the perfect life of Jesus Christ who is able to satisfy the requirements of God's justice. And God did all of that out of the riches of his own heart. So the gospel reveals the righteousness of God that we are under that standard and that God has answered it in Christ for us. 
Now that's powerful. Now you see, most of the people in this room already know everything I just said. But when you walk yourself back through it, something happens, right? You know what it is? It's the power of God. So friends, it's not your power, it's his. He sends you out with it. You have power. The power of God in the authority of the gospel. You can tell anyone you speak to that on the basis of repentance and... This is power. Think about it. Anyone you talk to, you are Christ's ambassador. You can tell them the truth that if they will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their confidence before God, right? They will be saved. You can say that on a, on a basis of God's own word. I call that authority. Finally, let's think about the people that God, that the king calls to his mission. I want to do that in three parts. Uh, first, he calls a community, which we've, we've touched on uh, briefly at the beginning. And then I want to think with you about the bookends of the community he calls together, Peter and Judas. Let's think first of all about uh, the community that Jesus calls into being. And, and it's very important to see that this, you know, I've already said at the beginning that the, Jesus' strategy is to create this community. Now, I want you to, I just want to emphasize this. This community did not create itself. The, the 12 disciples did not say, hey, you know what? We've all met Jesus, and uh, he's, we, we love him. We want to follow him. Maybe what we can do is if we band together, instead of him having individual discipleship appointments uh, with each of us throughout the week, uh, maybe we can form a small group and we can just simplify things. So we'll go ask him if he'll do that. Uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. That's how it would have worked with a regular rabbi, by the way. It's not how it works with Jesus, because Jesus is not a regular rabbi. He's a king, and it's he who summons the disciples to himself, and he brings them into... This body, this community, is not based on their natural affinities any more than the calling to minister in his name is based on their natural abilities. And if you think about this community, it's uh, kind of stunning because there are a lot of reasons that they shouldn't be together. What is Matthew, the tax collector, the collaborator, the Vichy French, if you will, doing with Simon the Zealot, the French resistance? Now, you've got to get real about this. Okay, those are people who should not get along together. What, what is Jesus doing putting those guys together? What is Jesus doing putting Matthew the tax collector together with all these small business owners, having an IRS officer with all these small business owners? Do you see what I'm saying? Look at who these people are. They do not belong together. The reasons for them to drift apart and not be together are are many more than the single reason that would bring them together, which is the king himself. You have, you have such a mixture of families. You have Peter and Andrew. Not every sibling that I know gets along with his other sibling. You have that repeated in the sons of Zebedee. Same thing. And then you have families who appear to be closer to Jesus' family than others. That would be the sons of Zebedee. You have all sorts of potential for rivalry and friction that you see when you read the rest of the Gospels play out, right? I mean, these are sinners together. Hello. 
And yet somehow, it's Jesus' design to take a community that has all these natural fault lines and keep it together by his power. Now that's exactly, it's a supernatural body. The church, just like this body of apostles, is not a flash mob that comes together by agreement for a single purpose and it goes away. What the church is fundamentally, regardless of what we think, what the church is, is the supernatural creation of Jesus Christ. And our life together is supposed to have only one explanation, just like the circle of the apostles. There should be only one explanation for our unity, and it is the king. A single explanation. He is our cause. You can look at the 12 and you can say, well, there are familial divisions. There are professional divisions. There are political divisions. There are religious divisions. And all those would be true. Those would be accurate observations. But the, the weightiness of Jesus, the weightiness of having all experienced this reality that the compassion of this king has come into our lives and now rules our fate, well, that is the most important story of anyone's life, and so they're together. That should be true about us. That's an essential part of the mission, of carrying out the mission that Jesus entrusts to us. And that means, be careful, that does not mean that the community is ultimate. That means that the king is ultimate. Now, what do I mean? If you make your community or our community an end in itself instead of the means to a much greater end, you will destroy the community. If you make your relationships here your greatest treasure, if you make everything, the the need for the community to be affirmed and no one can let you down and no one can disappoint you and no one can ever sin against you, if that is your motivation, if you're if the reason you're here is because, only because or primarily because the relationships are of such a quality, then please, in the, by the mercy of God, have your eyes open because that, will, that mindset will ultimately destroy the community because it's not designed to be ultimate. Only the king can be ultimate. How would that destroy the community? Well, very easily. We're going to let each other down. We sin against each other. We fail each other. And if you make the community's idealness your standard, it can never carry that burden. It wasn't designed to, but the king can, and he is. That's the basis for the unity. It's very practical, isn't it? So you think about the people in the church who you are not harmoniously connected with right now. And think about the reasons you're not. And then I want you to think long and hard about the reality that for all the other things that are different about you, there's this one banner at the top. The the compassion of Jesus Christ rules my fate and hers. That should change the way you think. Let's think about Peter. You know, there's a certain irony when uh, Matthew says that he calls uh, Simon Peter first. (laughs) Peter's first in lots of ways, isn't he? First in faith. Uh, 
first to follow in chapter 4, first in faith in chapter 16, first in failure and denial, first in restoration in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus' design, and of course, Matthew's writing this gospel. The reason I think this is legitimate for us to read this out of the text is because when Matthew's writing this gospel, he's writing this gospel from this side of Peter's denials, right? And he's marveling as he looks back. Oh, look at the company that the king assembled. We didn't appreciate all his design in this. But now we stand back and we look at it and we see from the beginning the DNA of the gospel was the whole point of this community. And he takes the leader, the the man he appointed the leader, the man he calls the rock crumbles and then is restored. I find that so encouraging. Because Peter is uh, just, just the latest in a long list of how Jesus uses people, right? Jesus' favorite choice instrument are people who have failed and are radically restored. That's the thing. It's not just that Jesus can use the radically restored. It's that that's what he wants. You know this because Peter's preeminence was not among the disciples, was not lost as a result of his denials. You would think that he'd be demoted, wouldn't you? He's not. You read the book of Acts. That's very encouraging. It's just like the Apostle Paul. Friends, right? It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Yet for this reason I receive mercy that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. That is supposed to be our story. Peter is us. So beautiful. And if you're a non-Christian who's here and visiting with us and honoring us with your presence, friends, this is the Jesus. Not the Jesus in that little one and a half by three inch piece of paper they were jabbering about this week. Did you know that's how big it is? I was going to talk to you about it before the service. It's only that big. Oh! Really? You're going to base your worldview on that, friends? I got a lot more than one and a half by three inches here. And it's so beautiful. And his nature is, I want you to see through Peter, that he is the radical restorer of any who will come to to him. It is so beautiful. So it doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what your attitude toward Christ has been up to now. I want you to know, I want you to hear that this gospel is the gospel of radical restoration. And there isn't a single person in this room who hasn't been radically restored if they've been restored at all. Beautiful. But what about Judas? He's scary. We need to be frightened by Judas's example because it needs to sink in. Jesus called Judas, who he knew would betray him, into the twelve, and he did it deliberately. Now, there's great mystery there. But friends, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about Judas. For three years, Jesus loved Judas. For three years, Jesus served Judas. 
For three years, Jesus, Jesus taught Judas. Jesus washed Judas's feet. Jesus sent Judas out to represent him. And yet, in those three years, Judas looked Jesus in the eye and never once gave him his heart. All he ever did was handle the outsides of the holy things that were in front of him. And in the end, he became Jesus' betrayer. Now, we'll think a little bit more tonight in the adult study about Judas. Judas is going to be an example tonight. But for now, so if you're interested in that, come back tonight. But I want you to think about what Judas represents. I mean, there's a uniqueness to Judas's role. I don't, want to, I don't want to deny that or suggest that there isn't in the Scriptures. But here's what I think Judas uh, d- does demonstrate in terms of his universal significance that we need to face. The presence of Judas in this group means that the inside of the church is also a mission field. The inside of the church is a mission field. That to be in the church, we must never assume that because we are in the church, we are in Christ. Now, friends, as a pastor, that is the thing that gives me the most fear and trembling, not just about you and not even primarily about you, but about myself. Because Judas was in the ministry and was unconverted. Judas was in the ministry and was unconverted. So I've looked at Judas today and tried to use, I mean, this week, and tried to use Judas as a mirror. I, I haven't tried to peer into someone else's life. I've just tried to look in my own life. Is, am I Judas? Lord, what do I need to do here? Because I know that you have said at the end of Matthew 7, on, on that day, many are going to say to you, Right? Many are going to say to you, Lord, Lord, and they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of your Father in heaven. You said, you've said to us already in chapter 7, many will say to you on that day, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And you have said, Lord Jesus, to those very people, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And so I've been prompted to obey God's command from 2 Corinthians 13.5 this week. I thank God for this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not know this about you, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Friends, that's a command to every Christian. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. That is not, by the way, a license to be radically insecure. That is a command to take your Christian life seriously. To never assume the gospel, but to believe on it over and over and over again. Judas proves that one of the paths to hell leads right through the ministry. Judas proves that one of the paths to hell leads right through the church. Right through the church. 
And I believe that Christ is looking every single one of us in the in the heart right now. I believe, because I read Hebrews 4, that God's word this morning is acting like a sword that pierces past all our defense mechanisms, past all of our distractions. God's word, without our permission, pierces every heart here down to the division of soul and spirit and lays bare every single thought and intention of our heart. And as much as we might want to hide from God, the reality is that nothing and no one and no creature and no part of any creature can ever hide from his sight. So friends, I know that's what God is doing this morning in your life, even if your eyes are closed. I know that's what God is doing because that's what he says he's going to do. And what I want to say with all the earnestness I can muster is you don't have to follow Judas. It is unnecessary to follow Judas because Jesus is the radical restorer. And this morning, it doesn't matter how long you have been in the presence of Jesus, just touching the outsides of holy things and keeping your heart from him. Today is a new day, like we saw in our call to worship, right? Today is the day of salvation. Respond to his summons. If you don't see repentance and faith in your heart, then plead with God to give it to you this morning and come to Christ with the confidence that he is ready and able to receive you. Today, may his compassion rule your fate. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for the sobriety. that your great gospel and your great glory are worthy of as we consider these matters. And we thank you for your mercies. Please save and strengthen. We pray in your name. Amen.